Greetings, welcome back. We are in our fourth session of looking at theological issues between Islam and Christianity. And beginning in this, this session, we are going to look at the Islamic challenge to the Christian view of God. I believe these are some of the most important sessions in this course. The doctrine of God is at the heart of any theological system. And in fact, the controversy in the 1400 years between Islam and Christianity has been focused on the doctrine of God. Norman Daniel, in his classic book, Islam and the West, makes this observation. He says, the Islamic denial of the Trinity seemed to be the basic point of difference between the two religions. He goes on to say, it was general to put the denial of the Trinity at the beginning of any account of Islamic teaching. And as I said earlier in this course, I said many Muslims say that God sent Islam to purify the true monotheistic concept among the peoples. And the sad fact is, after 1400 years of discussions between Christians and Muslims, we don't seem to be any closer in coming to an understanding between the world of Islam and the Christian faith. One Muslim writer, uh, writing a popular book on Christianity, summarizes his view of Christian Trinity like this. He writes, God, this is what a Muslim writer is saying, God is three gods merged into one God. This one God is called a Trinity. And then he says, all three parts of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal. For this reason, this doctrine is described as a mystery. Another Muslim commentator makes this observation. He says, the reality of God's unity discards the faith of three gods held and cherished by Christians so dearly. He says, divine unity and divine diversity are opposed to each other. So how can God be one and three at the same time? It is absurd, rationally impossible, and it's mathematically wrong. Unity and diversity cannot get together. And you can talk to many Christians that have been coming to churches all their lives. And you say, tell me, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? And most of them just say, we don't know or we can't make sense of it. Uh, many people give lip service to it, say we believe it, but they don't know how to relate it to their Christian life. One famous Christian theologian makes this observation. He says, while we use the language of the Trinity in our churches, in our worship services, it seems that this is a very dry doctrine. It seems to be full of theological speculations. It is, it is, filled, with it is filled with mathematical riddle. And he says, it seems like it demands a sacrifice of our reason. Many, many Christian theologians have observed this about Christians. Karl Rahner, a famous Catholic theologian, made this observation. He says, despite the orthodox confession of the Trinity, Christians are in their practical life almost mere monotheists. He says, if the doctrine dropped from our theology textbooks, almost all of our Christianity would remain unchanged. And as I pointed out in the introduction of this course earlier, uh, many Western philosophers and intellectuals have made similar observations. So in this session, I want to start looking at Muslim objections to the Christian view of God, and then we will, in the future sessions, we will look at how to make a Christian response to these objections. I want to propose a way that not only I believe addresses the challenge of Islam more effectively, but I hope that it makes this doctrine 
a part of our Christian faith and life. I hope as Christians, we become more passionate about our God and the worship of our God after these sessions. But before we get into the doctrine of the Trinity, I wanted to point something out too. In the introduction to the sessions, I said, under the doctrine of God, we are going to touch on two subpoints. We said Muslims object to the Christian doctrine of God as our father, so object to the fatherhood of God, and Muslims object to the doctrine of the Trinity. So let me make a brief comment about how to, how to open up this issue on the fatherhood of God. Somebody has said evangelical Christians are people who have answers for questions that nobody is asking. And I say that because sometimes we go witness to Muslims and we tell Muslims, we can know God as our father and we can be his children and that's such wonderful news. We think that's the greatest news we can share with a Muslim, but to a Muslim ear, that's blasphemy, that's nonsense, that's horrible news. So one of, one of the lessons I would like you to learn in these sessions is to try to put yourself in the shoes of a Muslim and see things from his or her perspective. Don't just assume that something that is so meaningful for you as a Christian automatically is meaningful for a Muslim. So, what is the Muslim objection to our talk of the fatherhood of God? If you remember our discussions from the previous sessions, we talked very briefly about the Muslim view of God as utterly transcendent, as absolute sovereign. Uh, the image that is used of God is that one of a master and we are his servants. So the language of intimacy with God and God being our father and we becoming his children is very foreign to the Quran. In fact, according to the Quran and Islamic way of looking at things, that language is degrading of the majesty and sovereignty of God. I told you that according to the Islamic traditions, Muhammad came in a pagan context in 7th century Arabia. And the pagans of Arabia were talking about God having sons and daughters as intermediaries to God. So the Quran wanted to get away from any language of, of you know, God being our father and we being his children. I want to look at a few verses with you. Surah 2, verse 116. And a verse like this, kind, this verse is repeated several times throughout the Quran. In Surah 2, verse 116, we read, and as I said earlier, sometimes in some Quranic versions, the verses might be up or down by a couple of numbers. They say, God has begotten a son. Glory be to him. Nay, to him belongs all that is in the heavens and on earth. Everything renders worship to him. Now, you might not have this in your Korans, but I am looking at the English translation of the Koran by Yusuf Ali. This is the most popular uh, English translation of the Koran among Muslims in the West. And Yusuf Ali, a very educated Indian Muslim, uh, he has written commentaries on the bottom of each page, commentary on the verses of the Koran. And this is what he says in the footnote in commenting on this verse. He says, now this, I, I, I want to read you this footnote to give you some insight into the mind of a Muslim person. He says, it is a derogation from the glory of God. In fact, it is blasphemy to say that God begets sons like a man or an animal. The Christian doctrine 
is here emphatically repudiated. If words have any meaning, it would mean an attribution to God of a material nature. And, and it attributes to God the lower animal functions of sex. So this is, makes, it's, it makes the image for God too physical and too human from a Muslim perspective. Now, this is not just the mindset of a modern Muslim commentator. Surah 6, verse 101. This is the mindset of the Quran itself and Prophet Muhammad. Surah 6, verse 101, this is what we read. To him is due, to him meaning God, to him is due the primal origin of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a son when he has no consort? He created all things and he has full knowledge of all things. It seems that even according to the Quran, in order for God to beget, he must have a consort. Surah 19, verse 35. A very popular verse in, by Muslims. Surah 19, verse 35. It is not befitting to the majesty of God that he should beget a son. Glory be to him. When he determines a matter, he only says to it, be, and it is. And again, Yusuf Ali, in his commentary, writes this comment. Begetting a son is a physical act depending on the needs of man's animal nature. God Most High is independent of all needs. This is merely a relic of pagan and anthropomorphic materialist superstitions. Now, I'm going into this detail to make a point. In witnessing and talking to your Muslim friends, a great deal of your conversations have to focus on clarifying misunderstandings. There are all kinds of misconceptions and misunderstandings about the Christian faith. Cultural misunderstandings, but more importantly, theological misunderstandings. So obviously, we are not saying that God has to have physical relationships with a woman in order that we can, he can beget sons and daughters. Just like um, Muslims are comfortable, like in the uh, in Islamic tradition, they can talk about somebody being a friend of God. We can talk about being children of God because we are trying to highlight the intimacy we can have with God. So to use, to talk about God, to give the good news that God can be our father, we are talking about a spiritual reality. So be patient as you talk to your Muslim friends about, about uh, clarifying and answering questions. But now let's get on to the Muslim objections against the doctrine of the Trinity. In the history of Islamic philosophy and theology, Muslims have developed a number of arguments against the Christian view of God. And we as Christians need to listen to them, and we need to think more deeply about what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And uh, as God has really used the challenge of Islam in my own life to always look for answers as a Christian. Don't be complacent in your Christian faith. Don't just be happy with, you know, just one formula and one answer. Keep searching, keep digging, keep uh, grounding yourself in your own faith. I am going to introduce in this session uh, the categories of Muslim objections, 
And then in the next few sessions, we will talk about um, responding to them and moving forward. The first category of Islamic objections, I have named them objections arising out of the Quran. There are passages in the Quran that explicitly address this issue. There are two important passages in this regard. Surah 4, verse 171. I will read just a portion of, this, of the verse for you. Surah 4, verse 171, we read, So believing God and his apostles, say not Trinity, desist, it will be better for you, for God is one God. And later in Surah, verse, Surah 5, verse 76, we see the following warning. Surah 5, verse 76, we read, They do blaspheme who say God is one of three in a trinity, for there is no God except one God. And then we continue to read, If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. So twice we encounter this word in the Quran, the, the word tathlith. Now, the problem with the Arabic word for the Trinity is this. The very grammar of the Arabic word makes this word to say making three. So in the very way, the very word that's used in the Quran makes it problematic about the Christian understanding of the Trinity. Christians don't believe God is one-third of the Trinity or Jesus is one-third of the Trinity. And that's why some people say that the Quran doesn't object, does not challenge the Christian view of the Trinity. The Quran challenges tritheism. And the Quran misunderstands the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, it seems from a passage that even Mary could be involved in the understanding of the Trinity according to the Quran. So some people believe that according to the Quran, uh, Muhammad is thinking about the Trinity as the Father, Mary, and Jesus. But uh, I am not so sure about that understanding. We will talk about the passage on Mary later. But Muslims have said, whether the Quran is denouncing tritheism or the Christian Trinity, this doctrine still has no place in Islam. Uh, God is still absolutely one, and the Christian doctrine is refuted by Islamic theology. The Quran uses some arguments too. Not only it has the two verses that denounce the Trinity, the Quran raises its own objections. The first Quranic objection is that the doctrine of the Trinity, or to say that Jesus is the Son of God, is a derogation to the glory of God, as we talked about earlier. Earlier in our sessions, we refer to Surah 112. And in that Surah, we read that God neither begets nor is begotten. There is a tradition from Prophet Muhammad that that short surah of just a couple of lines is worth one-third of the Quran. And to confess this verse is to shed one's sins as a man might strip a tree in autumn of its leaves. And so that's one approach of the Quran to this issue. And then the second objection of the Quran is that plurality in the Godhead leads to chaos, not cosmos. And this line was used later by Muslim philosophers throughout Islamic history. In Surah 21, verse 22, we read, Surah 21, verse 22, If there were in the heavens and the earth 
other gods besides God, there would have been confusion in both. And then goes on to say, but glory to God, the Lord of the throne. High is he above what they attribute to him. And then, um, as I said, Muslim theologians and philosophers really picked up on this line. And they argued like, if there, are, if there is more than one will in the Godhead, they would be in disagreement with each other over something. There would not be harmony if there was more than one absolute will. And so the reason that we have harmony is because there is one will that orders all things. The next, so let's move on to the next point. So we're talking about the Islamic objections to the doctrine of the Trinity. The first lines are from the Quran. There is a second category of objections. I call them objections concerning the logical coherence of the Trinity. How on earth can something be one and three at the same time? Now, unfortunately, when you ask many Christians about what the doctrine of the Trinity states, most people don't even know what that is. The Christian faith, based on the revelation of the scriptures, has summarized the doctrine in this way. That there is one God in essence, three in persons. One God in essence, three in persons. And Muslims and many others say, how can that be you know, right? How can that be logical? In fact, uh, from the earliest time to the present, Christianity has been charged with being an irrational religion. Uh, there is an intellectual Muslim uh, by the name of Shabir Akhtar. Sh Shabir Akhtar uh, educated at Cambridge University, and he's a very insightful Muslim writer and tries to not be very polemical against Christians. And he says, I don't want to sound mean, but it seems that Christianity is the most illogical religion in the world. He says, embrace of Christianity requires assent to the largest collection of highly implausible beliefs. He says, complexity is one thing, incoherence is another. Paradox is one thing, nonsense another. So basically, Muslims are saying it's logically absurd. Now, we're going to get into some responses later, but many Christians have said throughout history that, oh, logic is not important. Yeah, we just need to love God with our hearts. Our heads are not important. The, the Bible doesn't care about logic. Don't ever take that route in your faith. Jesus has told us to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We must not abandon logic and rationality. Another line of objections has to do with the problem of religious language. So I have this third category of problems. I have named it objections concerning the titles of the Trinity. So the first line of objections uh, against the Trinity were from the Quran. The second line was about the logical coherence of the Christian doctrine. The third line of argument is about the problem of meaning and religious language. And this is what I mean by this. Muslims said, Christians talk about God, the Father, and the Son. But if they use this kind of language, then if, if words have any meaning, a father must be there before the Son. A father and son cannot be together at the same time from the very beginning. So if you say there is a father in, in the Godhead, the father must come first, and then the son must come after the father. And so Christians can have it both ways. They can't just say that the, 
you know, Jesus is the Son of God, and yet Jesus, you know, the Son and the Father have existed from eternity. The fourth line of objections is the objection that the doctrine of the Trinity introduces plurality and composition in God. Now, this gets a little bit philosophical. Stay with me here. Christians and Muslims and Jews have always confirmed certain things about God. And one theological word that we use in regard to God is the, the word simplicity. We mean, um, the theologians talk about the simplicity of God. That doesn't mean that God is a simple being. It means there can be no parts in God. God is not made up of different things. Because if God is eternal, he cannot depend. I mean, if something has parts, it depends on those parts to make that thing. And, and since God is eternal and independent of all his creation, he cannot have parts. But Muslims have said that, no, the Christian doctrine automatically introduces all these parts into God. The Christian uh, theology has said that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three things in God but one God. And so Muslims say this introduces plurality. Um, Muslims have said when Christians talk about the Trinity, they say there is three persons in one essence. It seems that now we are talking about four things in the Trinity. So there is some kind of an essence or substance behind the three persons, and so you don't have three now, you have four. And so they say, see, your own doctrine doesn't hold up to rational examination. The fifth line of objection, and, and let me state that I am going very fast through these objections because there is a lot of philosophical issues behind these points. And uh, a lot of this goes back to Aristotelian logic, and we are not going to get into that right now. The final line of argument, and one that is the most common today among Muslims, because uh, Muslims themselves have, re have moved away from a lot of philosophical discussions. So the, the final line of argument is what I call historical objections. So the first few were Quranic and philosophical. They, were, they had to do with issues of logic and religious language. They had to do with the theology of the God's simplicity and essence. But the last line of argument is hist are historical objections. And this has two, I'm going to talk about two subpoints under this. The first subpoint is Muslims say Jesus never claimed to be God. So if Jesus never claimed any divine status, it dissolves the problem with the doctrine of the Trinity. This also has Quranic roots, this, this objection. Surah 5, verse 75, and I will read from portions of 75 and portions of Surah 5, verse 78. And again, the, the numbers might be a bit different in some other versions of the Quran. But this is what we read, Surah 5, verses 75 and 78. They do blaspheme who say God is Christ, the son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship God, my Lord, and your Lord. So Jesus says, no, worship God, my Lord, and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with God, God will forbid him the garden, and the fire will be his abode. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. And then in Surah 5, verses 119 and 120, we read this famous passage. This is a scene 
about the last judgment, and God is asking Jesus this question. And behold, God will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, didst thou say unto men, worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of God? He will say, Jesus will answer God with this comment. Glory to thee, never could I say what I had no right to say. Had I said such a thing, thou wouldst indeed have known it. Never said I to them, except that thou didst what, what thou did commanded me, that is, to worship God, my Lord, and your Lord, and I was a witness over them while I dwelt among them. And so Jesus says, no, I never told my followers to worship me. I only told them to worship you, and you know what I told them. So that's one historical objection. And then the second historical objection, which is also very popular today, is the belief that the doctrine of the Trinity is the result of the influence of pagan mystery religions. There is a, somewhat of a Quranic verse that also supports this. Surah 9, verse 30. I will skip the first part of the verse, but this is what the remainder of it says. And the Christians call Christ the Son of God. That's the saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say, God's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. And uh, I will come back to this verse later in our teaching. But basically, the charge is that any talk about the deity of Christ is, is, the, is, is the result of paganism, is the result of unbelievers saying these things. And so throughout Islamic history, but especially today, these, th this last objection has also become very prominent. How do we go about engaging with these challenges? How do we go about making sense of the doctrine of the Trinity for ourselves? I want to get into some responses. I want to first respond to the challenges that, respond very briefly to the challenges that we just heard. And then in the next session, I want to propose a new way of going forward. I just feel like we need to start the discussion from a whole different perspective. Is the Trinity an irrational doctrine? Is the doctrine of the Trinity a violation of the laws of logic? How can one be some, one and three at the same time? The first response we need to make is to emphatically deny that we violate logic. What is the law of non-contradiction? The law of non-contradiction states that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same sense. I will repeat it again. Don't panic. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and with the same meaning. What does that mean? If we said there is one God and there are three gods, that's a contradiction. God cannot be one and God cannot be three at the same time. If we said there is one God in essence, then there are three essences, that's a contradiction. If I say to you, I am a father, and then say to you, I am not a father, that's a contradiction. But the doctrine of the Trinity says there is one God in regard to one thing, and there is threeness in regard to something else. In regard to essence, there is one God. In regard to, from a different perspective, in regard to persons or relationships, there are three. 
We are not saying one and three in the same sense. So, so there is no violation of logic. Now, does this mean that God is not beyond our limited human mind? Of course God is beyond us. God is more than our logic, but he's not less. So the second thing we need to point out, that no, we are not violating the laws of logic, but we have to acknowledge that even if, when Muslims say God is greater, we have to acknowledge the reality that God is greater. We have to acknowledge that when we say God is a mystery, it's not a cop-out. We are not trying to escape from rationality. But if God is God and we are limited human beings, we must expect the fact that we cannot understand him exhaustively. If, if, if you understand God exhaustively, that's the idol of your imagination. That's not the real God. We have to understand that we are finite human beings trying to understand an infinite reality. So there is nothing illogical about the Trinity or irrational, but he is more than just our laws of logic. Um, when we talk about God as being father and son, the problem of religious language, once again, we have to tell our Muslim friends that by, that by the fact that we are humans, we have limited abilities to use language. We, we can only use language about physical realities because that's what we are. God is a spiritual reality, we are a physical reality, and all we can use is physical words to describe a spiritual truth. So it's true that we say father and son, but not in every respect that an earthly father and son relate, God relates with, within the Trinity, father and son relate. The famous theologian of the church, St. Augustine, wrote a very thick book on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, he, he wrote it, uh, he, he was a theologian of the church in the 4th and 5th century. And uh, there is a beautiful line in it that's my favorite in that book. He said, we say in our theology there is one God in essence, three in persons. We say persons not because we mean person, but we, mean, we say person because we don't want to be silent. Augustine says, when we say three persons, not like persons that we know in our human relationships, but we need to use human language to talk about a spiritual reality that's beyond us. This is the reality of God and the reality of limitation. Our time is up in this session. We will continue this discussion in the next hour.